0: 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26, the last Wednesday of the month, when we share at the Lord's Supper, we're also talking about communion, uh, teaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 a little bit at a time to enhance our understanding of uh, the church's gathering together to have that time. Uh, And so that's why we're not in our study uh, in the days of Noah tonight. We're back in 1 Corinthians. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get into it. Father, thanks for your word. Your word is truth. We trust it. We come to it as authoritative and authentic and inspired and inerrant. We want to know what it says and what it means by what it says so that we uh, can walk confidently, Lord, in uh, our faith and also in our practice of our faith, doing things like sharing at the Lord's Supper. And so help us to understand some things tonight, Lord. See some things that are in this text we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. A missing man formation, incredibly emotional. It's that aerial salute performed as part of a flyby of aircraft at a funeral or memorial event, typically in memory of a fallen pilot or a well-known military service member, a veteran or some well-known political figure. I've also been to a number of law enforcement funerals, far too many. They usually have a heart-wrenching end-of-watch ceremony. Dispatch calls to the deceased officer over his radio as if to contact him or her. After two calls, dispatch acknowledges that the officer is not responding, and they announce that the officer has officially ended his or her watch. I got to thinking about those public displays because of the Apostle Paul's emphasis on the public display of death when describing the Lord's Supper. In verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's more obvious that death is prominent in the original word order of the Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar. It's all Greek to me, you might say, but it's not hard to figure out the word order. And the actual word order in the original Greek is the death of the Lord you proclaim Until he comes. That's a literal translation of the words. So there's an emphasis on the Lord's death. Jesus also emphasized his death when he first gave us these symbols. He spoke of the bread as his body that would be given for us, and of the wine as his blood that would be shed for us. Without being irreverent, the Lord's Supper is both a missing man formation and an end of watch declaration. Jesus was born to die. His mission all along was to go to the cross. It wasn't an afterthought or a mistake. It was necessary in order for mankind to be reconciled to God. On the cross, as the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world, Jesus himself said, what? It is finished. So we would call that the end of watch, at least for that portion of his ministry. Then Jesus let us know that after he died, he would be a missing man. John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Where I am, you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And so he was a missing man. The huge difference, of course, is that Jesus is returning. First, he's coming to resurrect and rapture the church that he is missing from. And second, he's returning to establish a new watch, the kingdom of God on the earth. But all that, too, is anticipated in the way Paul describes the Lord's Supper when he adds the words, till he comes. And so the Lord's Supper, at least in part, is a public proclamation of the Lord's death and His two returns following that death. We may use it as a time of introspection and prayer. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, communion or the Lord's Supper can do a lot of different things for us, and we can celebrate it in different ways. Um, but it is also a very public proclamation. It's like an end-of-watch ceremony or a missing man formation. The word proclaim, as it's used here, it can mean that a proclamation should accompany the Lord's Supper. By that, there should always be a teaching or some instruction when communion is served so that people know what's happening. And that's a good idea, but more likely, Paul had in mind the other way this word proclaim can be used it can mean that the supper itself proclaims things in its symbolism. As you see what's happening at the Lord's table, it is making a proclamation. It is, in fact, meant to communicate without words the death and the returns of Jesus, and therefore how we ought to live in between is also highlighted. Think of it this way. Let's say a non-believer having no previous church experience ever, came to church for the first time. At that service, they were exposed to Jesus' simple explanation of the elements, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me, and this cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Wouldn't the non-believer understand the ceremony as proclaiming the Lord's death? The cup the elements, all speaking of his death. An astute observer might also grasp that in taking the elements, you were identifying with Jesus in his death. You were, in fact, dying with him. He died, you follow suit and die along with him. But in dying with him, you remain alive, obviously to serve him until his return for you. The non-believer might see symbolically... What Paul states in words in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't think it's going too far to say that you could come to a, a similar conclusion. Maybe not those exact words. But if you saw someone, if you, if you understood the communion elements and what they represented and watched people share them, you'd come to the understanding that this crucified man is somebody that we are following in crucifixion until he comes. And we are partaking of that. Now, it should come as no surprise that Paul emphasized the Lord's death at the Lord's Supper because he emphasized that the entire time he was in Corinth, he told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined not to know anything among you except... Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, Paul taught a lot more than crucifixion. In chapter 15, for example, he presents the gospel and he gives a masterful apologetic for the resurrection. He also describes the rapture, too, in words that we still quote today. His main emphasis, however, in Corinth, his theme was the death of Jesus Christ and how it applied to believers he said that uh, the Lord, uh, we would surmise that the Lord put on his heart, because he says, I determined, he must have determined that in prayer, that I was going to emphasize the 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 death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, because that's what the Corinthian church needs to hear. So in all the other preaching that he was doing, whether he was talking about the resurrection or whatever he was talking about. He was always talking about the death of Jesus. Applying this Christ and Him crucified theme to communion, the death of the Lord reminds us we are crucified with Him. Reminds us we are to daily bear the cross. It's a strong picture of dying to self. Paul said we are to always carry about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. That's from 2 Corinthians 4.10. William MacDonald commented on this, said, The life of the servant of God is one of constant dying. This is immensely practical. Any of the difficult situations occurring in Corinth could have been resolved by living as though crucified. For example, we mentioned this on Sunday morning, the believers were suing one another... In public court. A crucified man doesn't answer wrongs against him with litigation. Being dead to self means I forsake my rights when I'm wronged in order to not bring reproach upon the name of Jesus. A crucified man doesn't wrong others. He doesn't treat them in ways that would incite them to want to take him to court. Instead, he thinks more highly of them than he thinks of himself. It gets comical but the idea is that um, if, you're, if you're crucified, you know, obviously philosophically so, but if somebody comes up and starts yelling at and being, uh, belittling and screaming at a crucified man, a man who's dead, what's that man's response going to be? Nothing. He's not going to jump up and say, let's go to court because you, you owe me. And that same crucified man is not going to belittle you or, or tear you down. And so it's comical to think of it that way, but that's what Paul means. He says, are you dead to self or what? How dare you go to court? How dare you sue this brother? How dare you wrong this brother? You're dead to that kind of thing and alive to Jesus Christ. Do you recall the problem in Corinth at communion? The believers came together. We read every Sunday night for a service in which they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Prior to that, the believers shared a potluck called the love feast. At the pre-communion meal, the wealthy were hoarding food and drink and not sharing it with the disadvantaged members of the body. If the believers in Corinth had been emphasizing the Lord's death, if they had been dying to self, there would have been no problems with the wealthy among them hoarding food at the love feast. They would have been practicing crucifixion by sharing rather than hoarding. A crucified man doesn't want five tacos. He's content with the one or two or with none if there are those there who have greater needs. So do you understand this, is, this isn't just philosophy, this is practical. Are you crucified with Christ or not? If you are, then, then you have a very different relationship to the world and to others. And obviously, this involves more than just how Christians behave at potlucks. It gets back to basics, back to Jesus' own emphasis on the cross, that we pick it up daily, dying to ourself until he returns for us. And that's exactly what Paul said. You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You live a crucified, dead-to-self life until the Lord comes for you, individually in death or corporately for us all in the rapture. That's our future. If you're a member of the church, if you're a Christian... You're either going to die before the Lord raptures the church or we're all going to be taken up together. But either way, you're going to be with the Lord. Till he comes seems to focus our attention on the imminence of Jesus' return for us. It's our motivation to daily die to self serving him. We've been talking internally here, uh, uh, Gino and I and Alex, and, uh, about the imminent rapture. And, you know, where where does the Bible actually teach that and why do we believe that? And here's a couple of things. James thought the return of Jesus could occur at any moment. And he wrote, uh, we believe, the earliest book of the New Testament. He said, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned, because the judge is standing at the door. And so James said the coming of the Lord is at hand. And what he means by at hand is at hand, right now. And he said the judge is standing at the door, about ready to come. When the Apostle Paul described the Lord's coming for the church, he used personal pronouns that show he was convinced he himself might be among those who could be caught up alive to meet the Lord. He says... We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. We who are alive shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Another biblical proof for the imminence of the rapture is what Paul called the fullness of the Gentiles. This comes from Romans 11. It says, I don't desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of a mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Earlier in chapter 11, Paul talks about the fullness of Israel in terms of the salvation of the nation of Israel. And so he's using fullness in that same sense. It's a good thing. The fullness of the Gentiles is a, a, the salvation of Gentiles. Now, at the end of the book of Acts, Paul declared, Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. The gospel was to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. And as you go through the book of Acts, Paul always went to Jewish synagogues, preached the gospel until he got kicked out, and then he would share the gospel with the Gentile community. And then at the end of the book of Acts, there seems to be almost an official change where he says, hey, we've been preaching the gospel to Israel, Gentiles are also getting saved, but now there's going to be a dramatic change, and the gospel is going to go out to as a nation and being disciplined by God. And he spoke of the fullness of the Gentiles. Now, we know God is not done dealing with the Jews as a nation. He'll do that again in the seven-year Great Tribulation. That whole time is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's got a lot of names, but that's one of them. And Jacob, of course, standing for Israel. If you read Revelation, it's clear that God is dealing with the Jews primarily in that book. The geography is Jewish. The... uh, the 144,000 come from 12 tribes of, of Israel. It's, it's, it's God getting Israel back on track. And you read in the Old Testament that when he returns, when Jesus returns in his second coming, all Israel will be saved. But before that happens, Jesus is going to remove his church. The fullness of the Gentiles then refers to the full number of people who will be saved that constitute the church. Once the last person of the church age is saved, then we will be raptured. It's therefore never been a date that we could discover. It's something that can happen at any time. Uh, Some would argue that the fullness of the Gentiles obviously could not have occurred in the first century or any time long ago. And therefore they say that it's a phrase that says nothing about imminence. And I, I understand that and I almost agree with that, but it's an argument from hindsight. In other words, here we are now, and we're looking back at what God has done and God has accomplished and what God unfolded in human history, and we're seeing things from our perspective now. And hindsight is always, uh, you know, different than foresight. And so, but but it would be wrong for us to say because of what we know now, God could not have done any different than He's done, because God always has a way of accomplishing things that we might not be able to wrap our mind around. The example I always use is John the Baptist. Jesus told the disciples, "If they said, doesn't Elijah have to come before the day of the Lord? That's a prediction and a prophecy from the Old Testament. Something we all believe, that Elijah will have come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Jesus said, yeah, that's true. And John the Baptist would have been Elijah if you had received him. And you think, what does that mean? Well, I don't know all that it means, but it means that God has ways of fulfilling his prophecy that are beyond our finding out. And so for somebody to say, now that I see all the things that have happened, Jesus could not have come back. No, no, Jesus, if the rapture is imminent, it's imminent. And you let God worry about how everything works out. And so... um, The fullness of the Gentiles is a very important uh, aspect of why we believe in the imminent rapture. Knowing the Lord could return at any moment encourages me to the kind of dying to self-behavior worthy of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because I want to be occupying when he comes, busy with his work, doing his will. If I'm at the communion table, I don't want to be drunk hoarding my food, basically, which is what the Corinthians were doing. I want to be up in my right mind, having shared a great meal with brothers and sisters in the Lord from all walks of life, from all ethnicities, proclaiming that I am dead with Christ and that while I wait for him to come, I will live a dead life. But he's definitely coming for me in the rapture, and he's definitely coming again in his second coming. And So a lot, lot of proclamation, a lot of symbolism in what we do Uh, when we share communion, which we're going to do right now.